You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Hello, this is Felicia Lin, your host of the Talking Taiwan podcast. And today on our show, our guest is Michael Forncook, who is the founder of Pacific Brewcraft. We'll be talking about beer brewing, gypsy brewers, and how beer is actually healthy. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, Felicia. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great. So, yeah, let's just jump right into it. Can you tell me, how did you even get started with this beer brewing business idea in Taiwan? Like, where did that come from and how did you get started? Well, I I would say about 10 years ago, I started brewing at home in Silicon Valley, my home for about 16 years there. And my family and I, we decided to move back to Taiwan to look for new business opportunities in Asia. And uh, basically, we started looking for a business sector such as uh, the food and beverage and import-export business. Before we got here, we did some research and found out a little bit about the history of alcohol production in East Asia in the various countries. And so when we got here, we started scouting around to learn about local brewers, learn about equipment and raw material and supply chain, and learn that there was not a lot of available supply chain, and learn that brewing on a commercial craft beer level was still uh, fairly new, and said, hey, let's give this a shot. Uh, other areas such as Hong Kong uh, were still relatively small mm-hmm. in terms of the number, of, and so we said, Let's see what we could do to bring in the easier supply material and see what happens. Yeah, right. I recall from like one of our previous conversations that there really wasn't even that much equipment to actually do the brewing. Is, is that correct? Yeah, so for uh, home brewing, for example, that retail sector, there was really nothing available. There are a few suppliers in China who were producing OEM or ODM material to ship to other countries. Uh, in Taiwan, there's not much manufacturing in terms of that specialized equipment. On an industrial and craft beer scale, all the manufacturing is being done in uh, either Australia, and the majority of it is in China. So, yeah, not much here. Right. So, like, how do you even get started with this whole business? Like, did you set up a facility so that you could start brewing yourself? I know that you guys also have classes. Did you start off by having classes and educating people? Like, how did that all start? Right. So, first off, we set about to establish relationships with overseas suppliers. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we took a strategy of let's get the local craft brewing community, which there were probably only about three craft brewers that produce probably under a thousand barrels on an annual basis. So it's, it's really small, but but we started by getting the, the local leaders in the community, in the brewing community involved, and we started getting involved in social media to put out the word about education opportunities that we were beginning to offer and supplies that we were bringing in. And from there, it just uh, really exploded in Taiwan. And then obviously, we spent time outside of Taiwan to uh, develop the market in these areas, uh, both supplying retailers and uh, the craft beer industry. So I think the, the key was using social media, getting involved with educating consumers, and providing the craft and industrial brewery a better way to supply and obtain material. Mm-hmm. So what is the home brewing movement like in Taiwan, and what was it like before at the time that you decided to start? Yeah, good question. Home brewing started probably with about, you know, just a few people in Taiwan back in 2008, 2009. And so these folks who had friends who were brewers or who would receive brewing training in other countries. So these friends of friends basically helped a couple of local home brewers get started, helped give them some training out of their house. And from there, it just grew rapidly. Basically, whenever someone would travel on vacation, they would go somewhere and pick up material and bring it back into Taiwan. And then, you know, they would get together with their friends, have a party, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the moon festival or the ghost month, things like that. And, right, and right. It basically just the social experiment for a lot of people. No one really knew that you could even make beer at home. So right. much less what kind of equipment or, or yeah. material you needed. So yeah. it was really just sort of a community sharing movement where people would share material. They'd get together and have a little party, talk about how to do it. So it was really, really tiny movement. And then since 2008, 2009, it just began to grow more and more. People share information. They'd get together and have parties. And that's really where it started. There was no 
established retail outlet or anything like that for material. So we was just people sharing. And, right, uh, right. Yeah. So it was literally homegrown, right? <laughs> um, yeah, really. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, what is the perception or like how people react to this in Taiwan versus like non-Taiwanese? Because I'm sure there's a lot of like cultural differences in terms of like the views on alcohol and beer and all that. And I'm just wondering, like, how do people in Taiwan react to this? Well, I think Taiwan is different in terms of alcohol consumption than other countries in East or Southeast Asia. I would say main reason is because of religious influence. Mm -hmm. There's a, a lot of people who are, who are concerned about health mm -hmm. and quality. So I think people are, are somewhat conservative socially in some areas, not in all areas, uh -huh. I don't want to generalize. In terms of alcohol consumption, it, it's in general, it's not widely accepted. I mean, of course, there's a lot of alcohol consumption, but not compared to other countries of similar population. Mm -hmm. Take, for example, you know, South Korea or even go further south in the Asiana in terms of Australia or Japan in the north. But I think a lot of alcohol that's been produced in Taiwan for a long time now, Gaolian, for example, or Aijiu, rice mm -hmm. wine products mm -hmm. or sorghum products in the case of Gaolian. Right. And of course, there has been beer production in Taiwan on a commercial scale for a long time, yeah. decades, decades. Uh -huh. Right. I think in terms of what people consider alcohol, it's not something that's promoted, certainly. And I think there's a lot of still traditional influence on not consuming alcohol. So there's a lot of I think, barriers in terms of homebrewers, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit of a stigma, which is, I think, a surprise for a lot of people, both some Taiwanese and foreigners, who suddenly realize that, yeah, hey, you know, one of the reasons that people haven't done this is because there is a little bit of a social stigma still. Yeah. In Taiwan mm -hmm. versus other East Asia countries. So yeah, that's interesting. So I'm just wondering, how do people use beer in Taiwan? Like, do they do other things with beer other than just drinking? Like, do they cook with it? Do they use it for other things? In the last year and a half, I think people have been uh, looking primarily at how to pair beer with food. So food pairings which has actually been happening with wine for a long time. Mm -hmm, yeah. As far as cooking with beer, it's not really caught on yet. Mm -hmm. I think people here cook, cook with a lot of rice wine, right. traditionally. Right. Soup and, and things like that are cooked with rice wine. But beer is still catching on in terms of, hey, I can cook chicken with it, or I can cook a beef dish with it, or other such things. Versus other countries where the last couple of years it's become very trendy to cut open a, a can of beer and, and roast it with a chicken. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's kind of a, a trend right now. But I would say in the Western cultures, I think it's been done for a long time just because that's maybe food styles are different. Beer is somewhat more accessible uh, or not frowned upon so much. But I think it is a little bit starting to catch on, mostly because of the introduction of wine and beer tasting classes, as uh -huh. well as even some of the training classes of beer production, people talk about that. Right. And like going back to your um, beer brewing classes, in the beginning it sounds like it was just very homegrown and informal, but now you actually have classes, like you have some relationships with universities and educational institutions, is that right? Yeah, we have relationships with uh, several universities, and it's really one of the things that we feel that has been strategically important for us in the Taiwan market in particular, because in Taiwan, it's actually illegal to be paid to teach people how to brew beer. Uh -huh. Yeah, and it's kind of a surprise for a lot of people. Actually, not just beer, but any alcohol. I see. So that's the way that you kind of get around that, by partnering with an educational institution, and then it becomes like a part of their curriculum. Yeah, we get around that, mm -hmm. for the most part, by going through legitimized education institutions who have chemistry and biology and food science yeah. programs. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's, about, there's two universities in Taichung that we work with, mm -hmm. and then there's actually several food science and biochemistry departments at various universities. I don't remember all of the university names. Taida, I believe, and there's a university in uh, Xinju and Taoyuan and here in Taichung, and also down in Kaohsiung. So there's about... I would say five universities in Taiwan that we work with uh, to help their food science and uh, biochemistry departments with not just material, but equipment and understanding and invite their education staff to participate in educational opportunities. 
Right. And how was that? Was that relatively easy to do, or was it a hard sell for you to get these classes in the universities? No, actually, it's been not very hard. A couple of reasons why is, uh, believe it or not, universities in Taiwan have a little bit of an attendance problem uh, over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So for ways to add to their curriculum and production of alcohol is something that really hasn't been explored on a wide scale. There's been a couple of universities over the last 10 years, 15, 10 years that have started doing that, but it's not on a wide scale. It's usually something specific to yeast or, yeast or fermentation. Mm -hmm, right. so it's, it's not a, you know, it's not an educational level that you would see in Europe, such as institutions like Domans or the VLB or even sure. UC Davis, mm -hmm, for example. Mm -hmm. They view it as an opportunity for them to add to the curriculum, uh, bolster opportunities in new fields, mm -hmm. which universities are desperately looking for right now. Right. There's a big push on, on software technology development in Taiwan, and anything involved in food science, food production, beverage production is something that universities are pretty excited about. Hmm. It's interesting. It's like kind of like a paradox because you're saying that there are some cultural stigmas to drinking, but then yet the universities have been pretty open to having your classes there. So that alone is very interesting to me. Yes. Well, universities, especially I think in some Asian countries, are quite conservative. Mm -hmm. But I think in social change, you do see a lot of, how should I say, incubation of mm -hmm. change. Sometimes a little bit of rebellion, maybe, yeah, <laughs> from, yeah. from the universities. You know, a lot of it comes from teachers, university professors that travel overseas to get right, uh, education right. opportunities, mm -hmm. come back to Taiwan, and as well as students from Taiwan that travel overseas and come back. Uh, when they're overseas, they're exposed to new products, they're exposed to new ideas about commerce, about food production. So, yeah, they come back and they wonder, hey, why can't I do that here? And then they look for opportunities, and it all starts. Right. Yeah, and Pacific Brewcraft is actually in other parts of Asia as well, too. So do you guys have classes in other parts of Asia, or how have you found that to be, like, in terms of trying to do classes? Oh, yeah, very good question. We do a little bit of co-promotion for brewing classes with other retailers in mm -hmm. China and Hong Kong. We help promote their programs. We help sponsor them. Sometimes we provide sample material for them. And we also participate in, say, uh, the beer festivals that occur around other areas outside Taiwan. So we definitely do it to help promote the growth of the craft, mm -hmm. growth of knowledge. So right, really right. I was just curious if you find it to be comparatively easier, harder to do this kind of thing in the other countries versus Taiwan, or it's pretty much the same, or, you know, because it's also very interesting what you were saying about the whole issue of that it's technically illegal to brew in Taiwan. What is that like in other countries? It's technically illegal to pay someone to show okay. you how to brew. Okay. Yeah. In other parts of Asia, it's not illegal to teach okay. brewing. So we don't have the same legal barriers. And quite honestly, there's not the same social barrier, really. In Kong, for example, China, even the Philippines, it doesn't have the same stigma. And I think that really influences, there's been a lot more presence of, how should I say, foreign citizens of foreign origin have been in these other countries for, for longer. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's also a social issue. Definitely in, in countries such as the Philippines and Hong Kong and China, it, it's not as, there's really not a stigma involved with it. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's not illegal. But right. other countries such as Thailand, for example, it actually is illegal to produce alcohol unless you're like in a government-approved brewery. Even small craft breweries, it's actually illegal in oh. Thailand. But there's okay. a huge move to Thailand. Thailand. Right, interesting. So with all this talk about brewing classes and home brewing, what would I need to do if I wanted to brew some beer at home? Can you walk me through the steps? Like what equipment would I need to have or what would I need to do? Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. You need a couple of things to get started on a really, really basic level. You need a kettle to fill with water, to heat water. You're going to need a bag, a like a high-temperature-safe nylon bag or a muslin bag, a fabric bag to hold your grain and you're going to need a thermometer. You're going to need pitchers to move water back and forth. 
You're going to need a, a vessel to put your cooled wort to add your yeast. So basically, you would start with uh, heating water in a kettle mm -hmm. to a certain temperature, mm -hmm. and uh, you would introduce your crushed grain. This would be malted barley or other malted products, or even unmalted products, but usually it's malted barley or malted wheat. You would then steep those grains that were crushed inside of a bag in the water. You would need to stir it, maintain a certain temperature level for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half. You have to stir it for 45 minutes so you can stir it and let it go and just intermittently check on it? Key is to use a thermometer to yeah. check temperature and stir it. You might need to heat it up a little bit once in a while to maintain a temperature. And so the stirring would be to make sure you don't get clumps in your grain right. uh -huh. and to distribute the heat appropriately. So yeah, you'd stir it probably every 15, 20 minutes, check your temperature. Okay. Uh -huh. This is on a really basic level. There are more sophisticated equipment sure, that will have sure, yeah. insulated equipment that you don't have to stand over it for an hour. Mm -hmm. But basically, you would maintain a temperature for a predetermined amount of time, basically an hour or so. You would remove your bag, let the water, the steeped grain, the water from that seep out. And you would then begin to raise the temperature of your wort, boiling temperature. And then you can add hops, which is a flower plant product mm -hmm. uh, that's grown in the world. And it adds aroma, flavor, bittering to your beer. It can also add a lot of very unique characters. Mm. Everything from aroma of passion fruit, aromas of citrus, aromas of tea, flowers, all kinds of aromas and flavors you can add to your beer. Oh, that's and interesting. So that would depend on, uh, what is it that you call? It's called hops. H-O-P or H-O-P-F. Hops. Okay. Hops. So it depends on the type of hops that you add that would affect the flavor? Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, the malt has a distinct flavor depending upon the combination of malts, dark malts, roasted malts, sweet malts. The hops would add bitterness to the beer and would add some amount of aroma depending upon the amount you add and the type of hops uh -huh, you add. Uh -huh, right, right. And how long you expose the hops to boiling liquid. So that there's all these factors that affect these characteristics, flavor and aroma characteristics you'll get out of the beer. So okay. you would boil that for at least an hour usually. And then uh, after removing your grain bag, you would then uh -huh. cool it down yeah. as quickly as possible. Depending on if it's a lager, you need to cool it down to probably around 10 degrees Celsius or about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. If it's a, an ale, take, for example, like uh, I won't advertise, but I will anyway. Uh, <laughs> <here's about> a, <laughs> of course. Example, perfect oh. example of uh, yes. a beer that probably most people in America would know about and been around for probably at least 25 years. Sierra Nevada is an ale. You produce a lot of ale. Um, so ale temperatures are basically around 15 to you know 22 degrees. Most of it produced at that fermentation temperature range. So you basically, after boiling, cool your wort down to either one of those temperature ranges, uh -huh. depending upon whether it's a lager or an ale. Uh -huh. You would then need to introduce yeast into the wort, uh -huh. and that wort has to be into a, a vessel that can be sealed. Uh -huh. uh, the Belgians and a variety of other uh, people who produce uh, sour beers or similar types of specialty beers actually will ferment without a cover. But for the home brewers, I don't uh -huh. recommend you try that yet. Uh -huh. A lot of bad things can happen if you don't have good... Uh, Environmental controls can end up with vinegar beer or oh dear. yeah, beer that beer that's like a baby diaper. So oh dear, uh, <laughs> we don't want that. Yeah, so you, uh, for the for the beginning home brewer, we recommend having your cooled wort put into a sealed container, mm -hmm. and there's an airlock that is inserted into the container that allows CO2 that's produced by the yeast consuming the sugar in the wort to escape the vessel. So that's basically what you need to do in Taiwan or even in hot anywhere hot in the hot uh, regions of the world uh -huh. this time of year. During the summer months, or anywhere where it's hot most of the time, you have to control the temperature of your fermentation vessel, and that might require you to put it into a refrigerator that has a trustworthy <laughs> thermometer and temperature control system. Everything mm -hmm. I've put their fermentation vessel into um, a, uh, a, a bucket that's full of uh, frozen water bottles, for example. That's kind of a favorite thing to do if you don't want to spend a lot of money on a sophisticated fermentation enclosure, or if you don't want to buy your own, you know, used refrigerator and convert it to a fermentation temperature control box. 
But you can imagine in Taiwan, for example, or in Southeast Asia, Singapore, you know, where the average summer temperatures between June and uh, late September can range anywhere from 30 to 38 degrees or even higher in some cases, which is really not good for fermentation temperatures. For most ale, unless it's a specialty ale, like a Belgian or French, some Belgian or French ales, most ales are fermented at temperatures between 15 and 20, 22 degrees at the most. So you have to work really hard to, to try to keep the temperatures under control. There. Yeah, but is it so? It's very sensitive to keep it at that temperature. Is it possible to keep it too cool? And yes, it's very important to control temperature, and the main reason is that yeast is designed to produce a certain type of alcohol and flavor mm-hmm. at a, at a certain temperature range. Right. Temperatures go above that range. The yeast cells uh, produce bad flavors, fusel mm-hmm. alcohol flavors, mm-hmm. just because the uh, yeast, uh, the cell of the yeast, is not designed to handle temperatures of that range. Right, because if you're telling people to put it in a fridge or they're using ice or something like that, is it possible that it could be too cold? Yeah, absolutely. For an ale yeast, if you go below 10 or 12 degrees Celsius, 50 to say 54 degrees Fahrenheit, the yeast can actually fall inactive. If it's an ale yeast, it'll actually stop uh, converting sugar and can actually go to sleep, more or less. If it's a lager yeast, you can still do the same thing with a lager yeast if you go too cold. Most Mm -hmm. lager yeasts are suitable between 6 to 14 degrees uh, Celsius. Generally, most lager yeasts are held at 8 to 10 degrees Celsius. So... So if that happens, is it done? Like, you can't fix that, can you? There is a possibility to warm up the warts and what we call kind of a stir, gently stir or swirl the warts to allow the yeast to get into suspension back into the the sugary malted wort that you have. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Generally, some of the yeast will be negatively impacted to the point where it may not convert the sugar effectively so yeah, yeah. no that it's, sounds like a nightmare <laughs> yeah there are special equipment to, to help the home brewer keep their beer fermenting in the correct temperature range yeah. and there's a lot yeah. of people in taiwan that have started converting used chest refrigerators or even freezers uh-huh. to a fermentation vessel that they just put their fermentation bottle into and they have an external thermometer that's allowed the refrigeration unit to turn it on and off to keep the temperature in a certain range. And just to like uh, understand the timeline, so at the point that after you boil it and like for the forty-five minutes and like all that, and put it into the sealed container, does that take about two hours before you get into the sealed container? Yeah, it's a good question. So boiling forty-five minutes to an hour or more, and then on top of that, probably unless you have a really good what we call immersion chiller, which is a copper pipe that's mm-hmm. wound, it's like a big donut basically, you can put your hot wort into a, an ice bath and stir right. it. But generally it takes about an extra 20 minutes to 45 minutes to cool the wort down from mm-hmm. boiling right. to the point you can toss it in. So an hour plus half an hour, it's about an hour and a half total okay. time, plus about, say, yeah, it's about two and a half hours roughly mm-hmm. to produce the wort. Right. And then at that point, you, you can pitch your yeast into it. Right, and you put it in the sealed container. And then once it's in the sealed container, how long do you need to leave it there? Sure. So the total fermentation time once it's in the sealed container and yeast has been applied takes anywhere from 6 to 10 days. Again, that depends upon the type of beer and the style of the yeast. Lager can take longer. I would say two could take up to three weeks. At that point, you could... You could then condition it, bottle it. Ale, usually it's, you know, again, about six to ten days. It takes about two weeks again, and then you would bottle it after six to ten days, and then you could uh, wait for it to bottle condition and carbonate. So basically, after fermentation is done, you then transfer your fermented wort, or what we call green beer, into a second vessel, and you would add sugar, which would then interact with the yeast once you put your finished wort or green beer into a bottle and cap it. So when you buy a beer at a store, it's already carbonated. And you wonder, why is this? Why is this? How do they do it? Well, good question. When you At home, you can buy devices that will apply CO2 to a bottle that is a bit expensive. Most home brewers initially opt to add dextrose, usually it's dextrose, corn sugar or cane sugar, 
to two beers. So for, say for a five gallon batch, you'd you could add anywhere from uh, say eighty grams all the way up to one hundred and forty grams, depending upon the style of beer it is. You would then add that to your wort, and then you would transfer the wort into beer bottles using what we call a a bottle filler. A bottle filler is like a large straw that is attached to a hose, and that hose is then attached to a valve in your bottle that has your finished beer or green beer with the sugar you put in it. So you would would fill up your bottles using that filling straw, we'll call it, and then you apply bottle caps to the bottle. Now, the bottles and the bottle caps need to be sterilized. Bottles, usually we recommend people to boil or to steam at high temperatures to kill any bacteria. Bottle caps you can sanitize with, uh, you know, most any kind of sanitizers. So you need a device to apply the cap to the top of the bottle. Mm-hmm. So to summarize equipment, again, you need a kettle, you need a bag to hold the grain, you need a device to cool the wort, you need a, a fermentation container or bottle to put the wort into, and then you need a second bottle to transfer your wort and separate the wort from yeast and uh, material that's settled at the bottom of the fermentation bottle. You can imagine that after 10 to 12 days, for example, there might be a lot of material, heavy material that sinks to the bottom of a fermentation vessel, and that is yeah. exactly what happened. Right. So you, you basically need a second bottle to transfer that finished beer. Then after you've applied the sugar to the second bottle with the, with the finished beer, green beer, you then would uh, transfer the beer into bottles and then cap the bottles. So then at that point, you need to keep the beer capped probably about, uh, again, at least two weeks, depending upon the style of beer. It could be all the way up to six to six weeks to eight weeks. But at that point, you could then you know, chill and, and refrigerate uh, and, then, and then enjoy. Mm-hmm. So I would say total time from uh, day one for an ale, home-brewed beer, uh, you need about roughly six weeks total. You can get by with, with consuming it earlier, but generally the beer's flavor really, really comes to full maturation within that six weeks at least. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, not, it's not like Kool-Aid or <laughs> tea, you know, where you could just uh, add ingredients, steep, steep it, and, and then drink it within an hour or two. So it's, right, right. Well, six weeks even sounds short to me unless I'm misunderstanding because it sounds like when it's in a sealed container, that's a fermentation process, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that alone could take up to six weeks sometimes, right? Is that what you were saying? Sure. If it's a lager, lagers notoriously can take anywhere from minimum two weeks in the fermentation, yeah. up to all the way up to six weeks, depending upon yeah. what type of it is. Yeah. Before you're even able to put it in a bottle. Right. Uh, I guess for an ale, it's much faster. Mm-hmm. You're looking at six days to ten days to ferment, mm-hmm. and then transfer to a bottle where you would keep it for another two weeks or more, where you would want to try to consume it. So uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because you're saying even when it gets into the bottle, you want to leave it in the bottle for a couple of weeks, right? So that all adds time. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to leave it in there to condition to get natural carbonation and then also to allow flavors for a little bit. Right. Okay, so I'm wondering, do you have any interesting stories or funny stories about things that have happened when people have tried to brew beer at home? Like, have there been any mishaps or mistakes that they made? I wonder if you could share some. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, new home brewers anywhere around the world have a little bit of a learning curve, and Taiwan's no different. We've had individuals that um, have, for example, tried to uh, brew using cold water because they thought that maybe the beer wouldn't be as bitter. You know, for example, like when you brew cold coffee, you mm-hmm. do it to uh, to avoid bitterness. We've had individuals that, that will try to brew without crushing their grains, and uh, They'll call us up a week or two later and ask why their beer didn't really seem to ferment. Yeah, so crushing grains is important. you got to get starch and sugar out of it. So <laughs> it would be akin to trying to cook rice that still has a shell on the outside, which you can do, but it's not the easiest process. We've had other cases where, where individuals have you know, misused equipment. For example, they'll buy, let's say, an electrically controlled insulated vessel that you would mash or heat your grain in. So uh-huh. let's say a... Um, a kettle that's got like a built-in electric heating element in it. And mm-hmm. uh, what they've done is they were unhappy about how slow it was heating up, so they'll toss it onto a burner and turn the flame on. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then they'll basically ruin it, right? <laughs> yeah. That's not going to heat up what's in the vessel. <laughs> no. Yeah, it, it'll, it's heating up electric equipment tends to, 
destroy plastics and destroy uh, electrical wiring. And, that sounds uh, dangerous. <laughs> it's a good thing there weren't any yeah. fires that broke out. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stories. Uh, everyone's familiar with bread, and some people actually think that you should turn your, your grain into powder. And so we'll have people that will try to brew after they've basically sent their grain through like a coffee grinder or oh, a similar wow. grinder. That will, yeah, so that's the opposite. There's some people who don't crush it all. And then there's other people that crush it and like, you know, basically get it down to like a fine powder. <laughs> right, right. So then that turns into a very nutritious, milky, thick, cloudy malt juice. But it doesn't, uh, which is great for breakfast. Actually, It'd be like a a, a barley uh, a barley tea that you have in the morning, uh, kind of thick and malty. But yeah, it, it doesn't really turn into beer, unfortunately. I mean, there's other funny stories. You know, once people become familiar with brewing at home, they become very competitive, especially when it comes to brewing competitions, things like uh -huh. that. So there's funny stories where you know you hear people that have tried to acquire other people's secrets, things like that. You know. So, I mean, there's there's some humorous things where people will try to obtain information about other people's equipment or how they're brewing something or... Like or, the secret uh, recipe, right? If there's a special yeah. flavor or, like, consistency or something. Right, right, right. So, I think the funniest stories just come from individuals who walk into our retail location and... They'll pull out a bottle and they'll say, hey, I just tried to make a, a cider. All right, here's my beer, my first beer. What do you think? You know, uh -huh. and, and you try to be really nice, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it'll, it smells like apple vinegar and it tastes like baby diapers. So <laughs> uh, you have to be tactful when giving people feedback. Sure. But, um, yeah, I would say there's some humorous situations, but yeah. we try to keep things in perspective and keep things funny. So Yeah, sure. Um, but, like, speaking of, like, you know, how um, the different flavors of beer, I mean, what kinds of things, since if you are brewing at home, what are some of the things that you can do to, you know, make your beer more different? Like, can you add different flavors or fruit or different things to make your beer taste a certain way? Like, what kind of leeway well, do you have in that? Yeah, well, I mean, you can add fruit purees to a beer or even sometimes syrups to add flavor. Those types of techniques are a little bit difficult. Generally, people that do that will do that in a fermentation vessel. If you put it into a boiling wort, let's say a fruit, for example, it actually kills the flavor of the fruit. But if you're using fresh fruit and you throw fresh fruit into an ongoing fermentation, you have the chance of introducing what we call wild yeast oh. or other bacteria. Uh -huh. that's on raw fruit that can turn bad beer into really bad beer <laughs> when you thought beer couldn't get but, worse <laughs> yeah you'd be surprised i would say for the most part a lot of people in taiwan love to use local fruits and local ingredients at our warehouse we actually sell a, a beetle nut beer the really? bean nut pijo yeah, oh, that's and it's actually a fascinating beer. Everyone always says, oh, my God, you're using Binglang. You're using a beer that, that's got to taste terrible. You know, yeah. it's terrible. It's, it's, yeah. it's going to kill you. It's going to cause you cancer. And <laughs> it's like, well, you know, actually, it adds a little bit of a nutty flavor. And you actually use the raw beetle nut. So uh -huh. it doesn't have, like, the chemical pastes okay. and things like that. And it's a very small quantity that's added at the end of the boil. So you're not really extracting the harshness out of it. And it adds a little bit of a nutty edge to it, which is kind of unique. We've also used the flower, the actual flower bud uh -huh. that comes from the beetle nut palm tree. Uh -huh. And a lot of farmers down in Pindong County don't like you to do that because if you take flowers, then uh -huh. there's no beetle nut out of it. So, uh -huh. it, But the flowers actually have an amazing aroma. So that's something that you can actually put into the beer to add some very unique characteristics to it. But I think that the most popular ingredients in Taiwan to throw into your beer to add interesting, unique flavor would be honey, which is added at the end of the boil or directly applied into the fermentation vessel during fermentation. Uh -huh. Other things include mango puree, cherry purees, even strawberry. As you know, probably in Taiwan, they do grow a lot of fruits that, yeah. that uh, yeah. you would commonly see in the United States, such as mm -hmm. strawberries, for example. Very sweet here. So people really like to experiment with fruit flavors a lot in their beer. But it does add a level of complexity to making the beer. And so a lot of people, unfortunately, do fail at it the first few times. And 
until they figure out how to eliminate the chance of contamination, uh, bacteria or wild yeasts. Right, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm sure it's hard enough just to make beer the first time, never mind getting into all these different, like, flavor combinations. But uh, that's fascinating, you guys. I didn't know you guys have, you know, like a beetle nut beer. Yeah, so do you guys do a lot of this kind of thing, like um, customized flavors? Well, actually, we do consult with a lot of breweries, and we have a program that we call Gypsy Brewing, number one. We have a second program that we call Customized or Personal what we call tribute beer. Mm-hmm. So if we have a brewery from outside of Taiwan or even a brewery in Taiwan or a person in Taiwan, maybe who's not a brewery that wants to produce beer, we actually consult with them. If they want to get a brewing license and establish a company, we help them do that. Mm-hmm. If there's a what we call gypsy brewer, and yeah. gypsy brewer, which everyone can Google, uh, gypsy brewers are individuals that travel to different locales around the world uh-huh. and brew beer in these different locations, sometimes using unique ingredients to that geographic area. Mm-hmm. There's kind of, I'll give a little plug to Evil Twin. You can Google them. It's a, a gentleman that has a company. He travels the world who brews in different locations, sometimes using different local ingredients. And that would be pretty much your typical gypsy brewer. A lot of times they'll brew under their own label. Sometimes they'll partner with another existing company with their own brand. But it seems to be a popular trend for a lot of breweries that don't want to have their own physical brewer or mm-hmm. brewing location or factory production. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the second area that we work with is what we call special event beer or personalized, customized beer. And this would be for people who want to brew a large amount of beer or a, let's say, a corporate function or they want to build a gift for people or they want to brew for a special events, mm-hmm. again, like company parties or weddings. Um, yeah, or maybe a new product launch. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that the uh, band, uh, I think it's Depeche Mode, they actually announced that they had brewed a beer under their own label. Oh. So that would be another example of a gypsy brewer or a, a custom brewer who doesn't own their own facility. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a trend around the world. And things like this are like limited edition, right? Because it's only made, like a certain amount is made and that's it? Yeah, I mean, I would say the majority of the customized beers are one-off maybe two offs <laughs> you could put it that way uh-huh. again with gypsy brewers a lot of times they actually want to develop a brand in a certain geographic area okay. city mm-hmm. so yeah two different types of people with two different ideas and we help them in china hong kong and taiwan primarily mm-hmm. right yeah so i was talking primarily of the special event beers or beers for product lunch and stuff like that that seems to be something that's just more special like the something made for a limited number to commemorate an occasion or for a product launch or something like that right that is correct and the great thing about beer is that you can really personalize it. It doesn't take a long time to produce. Yeah. Whereas a wine or a, you know a whiskey could you know, take quite a long time. And beer is really unique because you can add a lot of different flavors to it. So mm-hmm. if you have, let's say, if your husband loves chocolate, you know you can make a chocolate flavored beer. Or if you're a company that produces, let's say, some fruit products or whatever it is, you could have a brewery make beer, you know, to showcase the product that you produce. So it's really, really unique, special opportunity, I think, for companies that want to, or even individuals who, who want to produce something special. Right. And that's something that you that Pacific Brewcraft does too, right? Yeah, absolutely. We consult with people. We help people devise recipes. Obviously, we can help people by providing ingredients as well. And then we also help them obtain the use of a, of a brewery and a professional staff. We have helped people find breweries in the United States that they could brew over there with, uh, and then, of course, in Taiwan as well, or in China. So we go both ways, <laughs> so to speak. Right. Well, so that's fascinating. So somebody who wants to brew their own label or whatever type of beer can actually work with you and use your facilities to do that? Absolutely. There's a variety of facilities in many countries that are very much open to what we call contracting. Even if you're just wanting to do it one time, a lot of times breweries are very happy to, to do that. It helps them gain experience, helps them market their existing product line. It's a win-win for the brewery as well as the, the consumer or the the one the, the person that wants to produce the beer. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I want to rewind a little bit and talk a little bit more about your company because I realized we didn't actually do that. Like, I was curious to know, like, 
you know, what was it like starting it? How long have you guys been around? And, you know, tell our listeners a little bit more about PBC. Sure. PBCraft, as we like to call it, has been around since 2012. Our company initially started with supplying the craft brew industry and opening up a a BC retail location in 2012. We since then obviously have branched into areas such as education, beer festivals, promotions, other areas such as supporting other areas of B2B. So this would be supplying materials to other retailers around Asia in particular and, of course, more breweries. And then also we're developing, ready to launch a website called agragogo.com. A-G-R-I-G-O-G-O, a little plug for our, our new website that we're developing. It's a B2B agricultural food marketplace. Uh-huh. It would kind of consider it the Alibaba or the B2B Amazon, if you want to look at it that way, mm-hmm. for the agricultural sector, food products, and beverage production. So it's a growing segment. I would say that a lot of companies we work with like to work directly with the source. Uh-huh. And so we recognize the opportunity for PB Craft to get involved in commerce, specifically with the agriculture food production sector. And so we're developing this website to enable beverage producers to reach markets that they may not have ever been able to think about reaching into. We supply multilingual language support for people. So let's say if you're a, a rice producer in Vietnam and you want to you know, sell your rice into Canada or you want to sell your rice into Greenland or uh-huh. into Germany, you know, we can help you do that. We can provide online sales support in different languages. We can provide you a storefront on our uh, marketplace, our B2B marketplace that will allow you to uh, reach into an English-speaking uh, market and vice versa. If you're, uh, let's say, a company that produces uh, nuts or uh, wheat, for example, mm-hmm. in Canada, mm-hmm. want to sell your product to Southeast Asia, how do you do that? You know, my God, you know, do you have to work with a distributor? You know, right. and how much do you trust the distributor? Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot of these agricultural producers actually wanting to skip the distributor, the traditional distributor models, uh-huh. and move into selling directly into the local markets in different regions around the world. So it's a great time. Food safety and food distribution is a major concern right now, especially because of global warming, I think, but also uh, food scarcity. And there's there's a lot of food that goes wasted, a lot of food that gets thrown away or, right. or, or tilled under uh-huh. because farmer doesn't have anywhere or a way to selling it. Hmm. So now we, we have to be able to provide a marketplace uh-huh. to where people can to do that. Wow, that's fascinating. That's a really ambitious product. Maybe we'll have to come back and talk about this in a year or so from now when you guys are further along with that. It's fascinating. Yeah, well, we, we would love to circle back and talk about that later after we yeah. have more time working. Yeah, definitely. People have some misperceptions about beer, right? Like, first of all, like the common perception is that beer is not healthy, right? But is that true when it comes to craft beer? Well, I would say in general, Alcohol consumption in, in uh, large quantities is not good for our bodies <laughs> yeah. so, or the mind. So to break it down to craft, the interesting thing about craft beer is that it really apply, uh, appeals to individuals who are looking for quality, uniqueness, personality over quantity. And on top of that, I think... Price is also an issue. So craft beer is generally quite a bit more expensive than a large commercial, commercially brewed beer, yeah. such as your standard from standard lagers from Miller Coors or uh, Budweiser, for example, or in Taiwan beer or Qingdao. Does that just have to do with the scale, like the the scale at which they're able to produce, and so they can have the cost bring the cost down because of that? Well, I would say scale and the types of ingredients, or the quantity of ingredients that they apply. Mm-hmm. I would say that in terms of consistency, quality, those commercially produced beers are actually pretty high quality, but they're not what we call specialty. They're not unique. Right. They don't have a lot of character to uh-huh. them. Uh-huh. The ingredients they usually put in them are very basic ingredients, so the flavors are not very interesting. Okay. Um, in terms of health, Again, a cheaper product generally is easier to consume because of the price point. Yeah. So if you if an individual is worried about beer mm-hmm. and is concerned about health, I always recommend people to look for beer that has not been filtered mm-hmm. and look for 
software that is produced in smaller quantities using either organic or you know carefully controlled brewing processes. To be quite honest, unfiltered beer, which still has yeast in it, is, has extremely high amounts of nutrients. Uh-huh. And the, the yeast that's in, included in there is extremely good for the digestive system, so as well as other things. So, right, interesting. Uh, you know, there's a lot of benefits behind craft beer sure. or unfiltered. So, uh-huh. I would definitely encourage individuals who want a healthy beverage, something to help with dopamine levels, something to help with digestive tract. A lot of these areas. Uh, can look at craft beer as something mm-hmm. that they can add mm-hmm. in small quantities to their sure. diet. And I will say one thing is that there's a trend right now in Europe to uh, have beer spas, actually. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> and, yeah, because beer also includes a lot of nutrients, minerals that are good for the skin. Oh. And so there are actually beer spas where you can go sit in a, in a spa or a bath <laughs> full of full of beer, you know, let's say wow. a 500 liter container. Yeah, it's oh, pretty wow. cool. You can soak in beer and then drink beer at the same time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Wow. Who would have thought? So I think that there are a lot of health benefits with beer. In, maybe in various maybe next time you guys will be doing that, right? Are you going to go into the beer spa business now? <laughs> yeah, really, really. Well, we've been talking about it, but really? uh, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, well, you know, maybe uh, it's a whole new business. You yeah, can do, like, the masks, there are tea you know, the scrubs. Yeah, so you can make what's, a wrong with, what's wrong with beer? <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. We know that things like oatmeal have, have great uh, impact on the skin. So maybe maybe beer is something that's an option. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> what are people's beer buying habits in Taiwan? Like, do they, you know, because I don't know how many people know about craft beer or buy craft beer or what's the availability of it. Well, I, I will say that availability is still specialized. You can obtain domestically produced craft beer or imported craft beer in a variety of locations. In Taipei, there's dozens of specialty beer shops now mm-hmm. where you can buy, consume in, or or carry out. Uh-huh. So lots of brick and mortar in Taipei in and other cities such as Kaohsiung, uh, Tainan, Taichung, Tanghua. So it's becoming more more accessible. We're seeing uh, companies, retailers, grocery chain stores like uh, Carrefour uh, carrying some amount of locally produced craft beer. And we're seeing the small convenience stores like Family Mart and 7-Eleven offering it for sort of what we call online purchase. You basically order it online and then go Mm -hmm. to the store and pick it up. Mm -hmm. They're not offering, really not yet, in store, occasionally they'll offer maybe one brewery's product for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. But I think the price point, from the standpoint of those retailers, they probably think the price point's pretty high. Yeah. Compared to a mass-produced beer like Budweiser, Heineken, or Shingo, sure, sure. you're talking about you know at least double the price. So mm-hmm. I think as far as people think and accessibility, you know, it's still especially products. It's still not something that a lot of people will buy because they don't. They're not aware of the difference mm-hmm. and the quality difference mm-hmm. over it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's just going to take time. But I would say in the last four years, we've seen huge inroads in the retail or accessibility of craft beer, both domestically produced and imported in Taiwan's retail sector. So if the last three to four years is any indication the penetration of craft beer in Taiwan's retail chains, then I think the next three years is, is also going to be just as remarkable. So I, I think we will start to see craft beer take a pretty serious hold in the market. I think it's still relatively small. Consumption is probably still less than 15% of all beer consumed in Taiwan. Uh-huh. But again, you know, just look at other areas of the world or even in East Asia like Japan and South Korea uh, where craft is really, uh-huh. really taking hold. So, uh-huh. so perception is Craft is expensive. As soon as people understand why, what's unique about it, they'll start to accept that there is a big difference and why the price is different. So a lot of breweries are doing a lot of like beer shows at various department stores, uh-huh. beer shows in combination with retailers, uh-huh. and breweries are actually collaborating to come together to hold beer shows or beer fairs together various times during the summer. So to summarize, I think the consumer availability, uh, definitely seeing a remarkable change in the last three years to craft beer. 
Yeah, it sounds like that. Because if you're telling me that there's like a dozen uh, specialty stores in Taipei, I'm sure it wasn't like that four years ago when you started. Oh, yeah. There's more than uh, almost two dozen stores right now. Uh There's at least six tap rooms, Mm -hmm. pubs you can walk Mm -hmm. and get locally beer on tap, on draft. Right. So it's slowly taking off in Asia. Like, where do you think in Asia is it the most popular? If not in Taiwan, where is craft beer the most available or taking off the most? Sure. I would say Japan is huge. I would say Japan's number one in terms of craft beer. I mean, these, these, these numbers are just my opinion only. Mm-hmm. But I would say Japan is probably number one in craft market penetration, maybe even consumption. I, I can't be sure on that. But mm-hmm. And then it goes to China, South Korea, and Taiwan, and Hong Kong. Philippines is definitely coming up. Mm-hmm. There's about 14 to 16 small craft breweries in the Philippines right now. Mm-hmm. In Manila, Makati, Cebu, Cavite, there's, in the Philippines, there's several beer retail stores. So it's definitely growing in the Philippines as well. But I would say that would be the order in terms of strength of market penetration for craft uh, mm-hmm. has been mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was curious. You were saying that it's particularly difficult to brew beer in a tropical climate like Taiwan, right? So where would be the best climate conditions or place, to, in your opinion, to brew beer? Yeah, I, I think anywhere where it gets hot, you know, for an extended period of time, any location where, you know, it's steadily above 25, above 30 degrees, it becomes incrementally more and more difficult, and specifically for the home brewer. Mm-hmm. Craft is not a problem because they have sophisticated equipment to protect fermentation conditions. But So for home brewers, almost anywhere around the world during summer months, mm-hmm. so even Australia during North America's winter, it can be difficult because obviously the seasons are different. But yeah. anywhere where it gets pretty warm for a long period of time, during the summertime, it can be quite challenging. I think, you know, northern hemisphere, you know, I'd say above the 50 to 55 degrees, if you're looking at a region on the globe, probably a little bit easier. But again, summer is a tough time to brew. So, for example, traditionally in Belgium and France, they will brew beer before the summer months, especially uh-huh. home brewers, uh-huh. and actually brew a bunch of it to, to keep it through the summer. Right. So that they don't have to struggle <laughs> Through the summer months, too. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. And so the same as, I think, for a variety of locations around the world, whether it's Russia or Canada or Germany. There are challenges that exist. But I would say, you know, in, in the tropics, Southeast Asia, it's pretty difficult. Between, I would say, October and March is really where it becomes much more comfortable to, to brew. Okay. Uh, but, uh, okay. After that, it starts to get quite a bit warmer. Right. Okay, interesting. So yeah, I feel like we're kind of going backwards in this podcast, but anyways, because I'm gonna, I also wanted to ask you if you could uh, share, like, how it is that you ended up coming to Taiwan. After all, this is the Talking Taiwan podcast, and it's always interesting to me how it is that people end up in Taiwan in the first place. The decision to come to Taiwan was actually pretty easy. I've been in Silicon Valley working in the tech industry for about 16, 17 years. And I met my wife about eight years ago, and she's from Kaohsiung, and she was going to school. We met, romance ensued, mm-hmm. we got married, mm-hmm. and I'd been in Silicon Valley long enough where I was really ready to get out and mm-hmm. look for new opportunities. And so my wife is, comes from a family of entrepreneurs, family who's in textile business and uh, clothing manufacturer business for decades. Right. So... Her family's uh, got a big entrepreneurial spirit. My ancestors are pretty much farmers, <laughs> blacksmiths. <laughs> and, uh, so, so I guess in my blood, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur as well. And so, well, hey, it I, sounds I, like it I, makes I, sense because here you are. You're yeah. doing something in agriculture and beer, and you're and you started your own business. So it is like this company is like a product of your marriage. <laughs> it sounds like. Well, I think it is. I think it is. And, you know, there's challenges with running a, a company, you know, when you're married uh-huh. with, your, with your partner. There are definitely challenges. There are cultural challenges, language barrier challenges. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, you know, you have to take one day at a time and you have to work with each other's strengths rather than focusing on each other's weaknesses. Hopefully that's not too cliche, but 
it really is true, especially as an entrepreneur, when you have a lot riding on your family's future. Mm-hmm. Like I said, entrepreneurship is in my family's background. Risk-taking is in my family's background. Mm-hmm. And we made the decision initially to come to Taiwan to look for these business opportunities. Um, but I also wanted to study Chinese to sharpen up my skills. I've been studying for about a year at a college in Silicon Valley. So I came to Taiwan, was able to get a uh, Ministry of Education scholarship to study Mandarin here, and attended Honghai University, Honghai Dashe, for mm-hmm. a little while. I wanted to study for longer, but the business took off rather quickly and ended up taking more and more of my time away from studying. And wow. so I ended up not uh, studying as long as I had expected. Uh-huh. And due to my travel schedule between Europe and Asia, uh-huh. pretty hard to you know get into any organized classes. So initially I, I came here to look for business opportunities and also study Chinese uh-huh. and to get a better understanding of, of the culture, right. the nuances of culture and the culture of business right. in this part of the world. Yeah. Quite different than uh, anything you would experience in the world. Wow. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a lot of entrepreneurs in Taiwan, actually, that I've met over the last uh, four years that yeah. have a lot of interesting stories. Yeah. They're going from teachers that started up their own schools to people in uh, semiconductor software development, uh-huh. actors, I yeah. mean, you name it. There's a wow. lot of interesting stories. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you have, especially for someone who's an expat in Taiwan who wants to or is trying to start a business? Is there some special piece of advice that you would like to share with them that maybe they don't already know? Yes, absolutely. I think the number one thing, especially when traveling overseas to start up an enterprise, is you have to have capital to survive. Mm -hmm. To feed your family and to supply capital into growing the business. Mm-hmm. You know, it can take a number of years to the point where you know you can start generating enough income to sustain the business as well as start working on business development and grow the business in different ways. So mm-hmm. capital is a big, big issue that you have to come with, and you have to come with an open mind. I hate to use cliches again, but I mean, you really have to come with an open mind and an open heart. Mm-hmm. And you have to come willing to accept that things are not going to be the way that you feel they should be. And that goes for everything from differences in culinary experience to how people perceive business trust, mm-hmm. how relationships are developed in mm-hmm. business, mm-hmm. how to manage employees. Mm-hmm expectations of your customers, mm-hmm. all of these things you have to be able to come to willing to understand that there are big differences. And my recommendation is, in addition to capital, you need to be prepared and come with some amount of knowledge mm-hmm. about what these differences are. Right. So it will help also if you have a trusted partner yes. from the region that you are attempting to start an enterprise in. Right. So then what do you think has been like one of the biggest issues with your business? I would say a couple of the top issues are logistics, temperature control, and the expectations of individuals or other enterprises that we uh, will partner with as well as supply material. So logistics is a big issue, mm-hmm. let's say in particular in Taiwan. There's not a lot of availability for refrigerated transport. It's mm-hmm. getting better than it mm-hmm. was three, four years ago. Uh-huh. But in our business, food products, raw yeah. materials, right. refrigeration is very important. So yeah. that's been a big challenge. Another challenge is developing partnerships with overseas suppliers. Taiwan is not known as a big market, and there are trade barriers that don't exist with other countries. Right. So it's been a little bit of a challenge to get overseas suppliers mm-hmm. to pay attention to mm-hmm sector in this part of Asia. Mm-hmm. And so we have spent a lot of time talking with people and developing close-knit relationships mm-hmm. in with partners in England and uh, Belgium and France or Germany and in the, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of them don't know anything about craft in Asia and the unique market that exists. Mm-hmm. A lot of the producers of materials are just used to breweries, you know, signing contracts, 
with a company to import two to three hundred metric tons of material, and you know, there's and then they just sign the dotted line and walk away. There's no nothing after that. But in Asia, it's a little bit different. It's basically like how it was in the craft sector in the United States maybe 20 years ago. So there's a lot of hand-holding has to be done, a lot of developing or even incubating mm -hmm. of local breweries mm -hmm. that have to be done, and mm -hmm. a lot of suppliers don't understand that. So mm -hmm. challenges are the partnerships with overseas suppliers. Other challenges include the local community who's used to buying cheaper material from China, for example, lower quality material. Right. And so they're used, they usually get a little bit of a price shock when they hear the price of malt from the United States or other countries. And, you know, someone that's been brewing a brewery buying uh, malt for, you know, half the cost of something, how, how do they absorb that cost? Where does that, how does that work for them? So that's an issue that we have to deal with. And I think marketing is also an issue you have to work with in, in Asia. Marketing is done differently than in the U.S. And uh -huh. it's taken me a while to understand that. Uh -huh. Marketing here is done in short campaigns. Uh -huh. Just because I think people become disinterested rather easily. So you have to be extremely creative with marketing and communications in Asia. So you're saying people have a shorter attention span where that's concerned, it seems? I, don't know. I would say consumers. Yeah have a different attention span right. in any country yeah. and a different type of message mm -hmm. is required. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies are not so good at it in uh -huh. Asia uh -huh. in general and in, in almost anywhere around Asia because people are, are just used to throwing signs up or hawking stuff on the street. So uh -huh. it, it, it takes a little bit different technique. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. No, those are those are probably the biggest challenges. Economics-wise, I, I think there's a little bit of a slowdown in the uh, in East Asia in general. Mm -hmm. Not really specific to any one country, but there's mm -hmm. a general economic slowdown. Right. But it's interesting because it hasn't really impacted yet individuals with a lot of disposable income, mm -hmm. and that's good craft beer sector, whereas it, as well as whiskey or, or wine, for example. Right, because that's your segment. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. So how can people uh, learn more about PB Craft or AgriGoGo? PB Craft, our company page is basically at pbcraft.com. Mm -hmm. And at that page, it includes about our company, about our founding story. There's information in there about beer festivals around Asia as well as around the world. There's information there about education classes in Asia, information there about brewing, we have information there with blogs from a variety of brewers in Asia and outside of Asia. And AgraGoGo, you can find it from our PB Craft page, or you can just go to agragogo.com. That's A-G-R-I-G-O-G-O.com. And we also have a B2C retail website, and mm -hmm. it's DIYBeersupply.com.tw. That's basically our, our BSC website for homebrew materials. Oh, so do you, you sell homebrew materials on your site then? We are basically also quick and mortar, or what we call BSC. Wait, so no, but so like besides the ingredients, do you actually sell like some of the equipment, like the, the bag and things like that, that people need to homebrew? Or is it just the raw materials, yeah. like the ingredients? We sell both. Oh, great. So, yeah, .tw mm -hmm. is our B2C web store, and you can buy materials, you can buy beer kits, equipment, a variety of products on there, materials that you imported from around the world, as well as material uh, equipment that we've designed and have manufactured in Asia. Okay. So, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of information there. We have brewing tips that are available, some tools that make it easier. It's in Chinese and in English right now. Great. Uh, yeah, I was about to ask that if it's bilingual. <laughs> yeah, we encourage everyone to learn more about what's happening in craft brewing as well as even home brewing in Asia. So if you're a home brewer in Hong Kong or a home brewer in the Philippines or even in Japan or in China, South Korea, I mean, Thailand, <clears throat> there's a lot of information out there. Folks have questions about information in different countries. You know, they're welcome to, to send us an email. We have a general information email. It's info at pbcraft.com. And uh, welcome to submit any questions, inquiries about if you want to learn about the different techniques of brewing or what's happening in Asia. We're happy to, happy to take questions. 
Um, yeah, and is there anything else you'd like to share with people about PB Craft or home beer brewing at all? I would just like to say to the audience that I would encourage all of you to support your local brewery. It's very important to support the local small business entrepreneurs to have a healthy, locally produced, sustainable product, local products, uh, locally produced beverages. Uh, we encourage everyone to support the local breweries in your wherever you are. It just helps the economy. It helps craft itself. And you're helping to employ people. And you're helping to improve competition in, in a market, beer production, that has been dominated by large producers for a long, long time. So we encourage all of you to support the local brewery and support your local entrepreneur. Great. Well, thank you so much for that. Well, I look forward to having you back on perhaps in the future to talk about Agagogo or the ventures that you have. I really appreciate your time and, and the effort that everyone at the organization puts together and, and the hard work you guys do. So we'd be happy to help out in any way we can. And, and thanks again for inviting us. Okay, great. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.